Our Old Testament lesson this morning is from Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 13. Isaiah 55, 1 through 13, which can be found on page 602 in your pew Bibles, or 1150 in the large print. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made. And God, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. And God, we thank you that you tell us that your word, when you send it out, it does not return void, but it accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. Lord, we ask that this morning that your purpose in our lives would be that we would hear your word, that we would receive it, that we would have ears that would hear, that we would have minds that would understand, that we would have hearts that have been prepared and made ready to receive this word into our lives today. God, that we would leave this sanctuary this morning different people than we came in as you change us more and more from the inside out and the people that you created us to be. That we would leave the sanctuary today with our eyes on you, with our hearts, the compass of our hearts pointed towards you, with our feet following after you wherever we go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 13. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good. And you will delight in the richest, in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen, that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways, and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, And instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Our New Testament lesson is from Romans. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Shame, I'm going to have to stop it there. You get home, you can just read all of Romans 8. Just read all of Romans. It's good. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. It should be found on page 916 in, the, in your pew Bibles or 1754 in the large print. 
Therefore, Paul writes, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this is Easter Sunday. And so, of course, it is Resurrection Sunday. It is the day that, uh, of course, we're going to talk about Jesus rising from the dead. Um, in a bit. I've heard it said that, uh, by other preachers, that nobody should be allowed to come to an Easter Sunday morning service unless they had previously come to a Good Friday service. Before you start feeling all weird and awkward, we didn't have a Good Friday service here, so I'm not, not saying that to anybody in particular. And of course, even the person who said it didn't mean it in a legalistic, rigid sense, but what they meant is, Nobody should ever come to the empty tomb without having first come to the cross. We can't celebrate what it is that what it means that Jesus rose again from the dead if we don't understand why he died. And what that means. See, Jesus actually raised several other people from the dead. Lazarus, a widow's son. Even uh, some of his disciples raised people from the dead. Paul raises Eutychus to life. We see this happening. People coming to life again. And yet, there's something different about Jesus. And if we don't understand the cross, we don't understand the empty tomb. And so, I know we've already been singing about resurrection today. We've already been uh, talking about he is risen. But we're going to go back in time just a little bit further. A few days uh, before the empty tomb. And we're going to look at Jesus on the cross with three verses. This is John chapter 19. Verses 28 through 30. We're going to listen to two of the things that Jesus says from the cross as he dies. This is John 19, verses 28 through 30. It says, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink... Jesus said, it is finished. 
With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We have two statements that Jesus makes here. He actually made seven from the cross. We looked at the other five in previous weeks. But these two we held for today. And these two we held together, not taking one separately, because they do go well together. I am thirsty. It is finished. Now, if you want to, you can take these as just average, ordinary sayings from an average, ordinary man, somebody who's hanging on the cross and says, I'm thirsty because he's thirsty. He's been out there. It's been hours. The sun's beating down. He's hot. He's dry. He's thirsty. And who says it is finished because he knows his time is up and it's time to die. So his time of suffering on the cross is over, and so he says it's finished. You can take it that way. If you take it that way, you probably haven't been paying attention to how John has reported this to us. Jesus doesn't just say, I am thirsty because he needs a drink. Or it would have said something along the lines of, Jesus had been hanging up there for a long time, and because it was dry and dusty in the region and the sun was beating down hot on him, he said, I am thirsty. That's not what John says. What he says is this. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Well, now that's got to mean something different. If he says, I am thirsty so that scripture will be fulfilled, it can't just mean only that he's thirsty. I'm sure he was. But it's got to mean more than that. John says it's to fulfill scripture. And in fact, most people will point you back to uh, Psalm 69 because of what the soldiers do next. Because in Psalm 69, David has a psalm where he says, Scorn has has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. So you see the connection. I actually think he's referencing a different psalm. I think there's a reference to Psalm 22 here, which he's already referenced. when He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I think it's actually Psalm 63 is the key here. Psalm 63, a psalm of David, which says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Why do I think this is the connection? Why do I think this is the psalm that Jesus is uh, saying, I thirsty to fulfill? Because John has already told us about an encounter that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman. Do you remember? Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at a well. At a well, the place where you get water to quench your thirst. And Jesus says to her, will you give me a drink? When she starts talking with him, she thinks they're talking only about water, that he's just thirsty. That's what he's asking for, and that's what he might be offering to her. But if you read in John chapter 4, he quickly lets her know he's not talking just about the water that quenches our physical thirst, but he's talking about that spiritual longing that we have, that longing that we all have that can only be quenched 
by the one true and living God. And yet, everybody since Adam and Eve, everybody has tried to quench that longing in other ways, has tried to find something else. Maybe I'll drink this, maybe I'll drink that. Maybe some satisfy temporarily, maybe some we find are just nothing but poison. But nothing really satisfies except the one true and living God. And this is why Jesus says to this woman, if you'd ask, I would give you living water. You'd never thirst again. She says, give me that. Because <laughs> he's already highlighted for her that what she has been doing is seeking after something to quench her thirst. Running from man to man to man. He says, you've had five husbands and the man you're now living with is not your husband. And for anybody here, by the way, who immediately looks at that woman and says, yeah, I don't have that problem. Okay, fine. (laughs) But we all do it somehow. We all try to quench the thirst that we have in us for God with other things. Looking for some other substitute. But Jesus says, he is the living water. He is the one true thirst quencher. And yet here he is on the cross, on the cross saying, I thirst. How is it that the living water can be thirsty? Have you ever thought about that? How can the living water be thirsty? That's what it is that he's thirsty for. Is the God who he is now separated from because he has taken on all of our thirst. He's taken on the sin of us all and therefore separated from God and therefore knowing thirst, the living water knowing thirst for the first time. This, I think, is what it means when he says, I'm thirsty. And then it says, when he had received the drink, Jesus says, it is finished. What is finished? Is it just that his time on the cross is finished? It's just time to die? That's all he means? Hopefully by now we realize that he's probably saying more than just that. We already read from Romans chapter 8. And Romans 8, verse 1, I think, gives us the answer here. In verse 1, it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. This is what is finished. The work that Jesus came to accomplish is finished. When he went to the cross, you can look at that and say, why did Jesus go to the cross? Was it because of Judas betraying him? Was it because of Pilate who hands him over to be crucified? Or was it because Jesus refused to defend himself, refused to get himself off the hook because he came to put himself on the hook for us? What should I say? Deliver me from this hour? No, it is for this hour that I came. 
This is what he came to do. And so he goes all the way to the cross. He goes through everything from birth in Bethlehem, raised up with Joseph and Mary, for however long Joseph was alive, <laughs> apprenticed as his carpenter, has brothers, has uh, a whole ministry unfold as an adult, suffers rejection, performs miracles, and then goes step by step heading towards the cross. And every step along the way, you know, (laughs) you know every step along the way, there were a thousand good reasons to turn away. And he stayed the course, marching straight for the cross every step of the way. And then he hangs there on the cross and people said, why don't you just let yourself off the cross? If you are who you say you are, just come on down. And if we believe he is who he said he is, we go, he, he could. <laughs> he could do that. But he doesn't. He stays until the end because that's what he came to do. So he stays there on the cross until the work is finished. And when the work is finished, then he says, it is finished. And then he bows his head and gives up his spirit. Now, I do need to point out that when we see Jesus dying on the cross, it is possible to look at that and say, I mean, that's, that's horrible, not just in the sense that you know, somebody had to die for our sin, but why, why does God have to be that mad about sin? Why can't he just let it go? Is it really that big a deal if I do these things that he said not to do? Come on. However, it's not a matter of just breaking arbitrary rules. It's a matter of not being the people that he created us to be. It's a matter of not being the people who are created to be in relationship with him. It's a matter of not being the people who are created to represent him to all creation. N.T. Wright puts it like this. He says, God's anger against sin is kind of along the same lines as what a, um, a maker of a fine violin would feel. If the violinist began using the violin as a tennis racket. That's not what it's for. <laughs> this is the problem of sin in our lives. One other point. N.T. Wright points out, he says, you know, sometimes we can hear this story, and we can hear that God is angry with sin, and this is why Jesus has to die. And we can hear this story as though what the message of the Bible is, is God hates sin so much, that God so hated the world that he killed his son. And he said, if we hear God so hated the world that he killed his son, we have misunderstood the whole thing. Until we can understand the cross in light of John 3.16, which says, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. And until we understand how different that is from the first way I said that. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Until we understand that, we haven't understood the cross. And if we haven't understood the cross, we probably aren't really celebrating the resurrection. This is the Jesus who 
goes to the cross, who thirsts, takes on our thirst, thirsts for us. This is the Jesus who finished the work that it would be done. I have a little quiz here. This is from a sermon Tim Keller preached. He gave, gave this quiz to his congregation. I'll give it to you now. So what if I say, how much did Jesus do on the cross? A, it's multiple choice, you're in luck. A, half of what you need to get to God. B, three quarters of what you need to get to God. C, one quarter. Or D, everything you need to get to God. And he says, how many people would get that wrong? Yet we're all getting it wrong. We're getting it wrong every day. Because we take the message of the cross and we say, okay, good. Jesus forgives my sins for today, and that gives me a fresh start, and now it's up to me. And now I have to live perfectly for the rest of my life. And if I don't, then I have to go to hell. That is not the message of the cross. The message of the cross is, it is finished. Now, how does this work out in real life? Well, uh, there was once a, a pastor who was preparing for an Easter message. And as he went to tell his wife something that he'd learned about Jesus and was all excited about that, his children were interrupting until he'd had enough. And he grabbed the toy his daughter was playing with, and he pitched it out of the room, and he snapped at her, and he watched her heart break. While he was preparing for an Easter message. That once upon a time story, though, actually happened to me, and it happened yesterday. And I tell you this for two reasons. One, Because when you hear a a once-upon-a-time story, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. When you hear that happened to me and it happened yesterday, that brings it home. And for those of you who have heard the story of Jesus on the cross and Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, and you've always heard it as a a once-upon-a-time story, I want you to know today it happened. I want this to be brought home to you. This is something that happened. It happened in real life, in real history, to a real person who is our real Savior. And then I tell you this story so you can see how the death and resurrection of Jesus works out in real life. If I believe it was entirely up to me, sin's forgiven, but now it's up to me to make it all right and do it from here. I'm as hopeless as anybody else. So when that happens, and when I see when I see every sign of a heart breaking on my daughter's face, and I know why it's happening, <laughs> I have to cling to Jesus saying, it is finished. That while I know that even if I share this story, you all may see me differently, I know that even when it's happening, God does not see me any differently because of Jesus and because the work 
It's finished. I also know that the reason it happens is because of the ways I thirst for the living God and I try to replace it with other things. We saw the woman at the well. She tries to replace it with something else. We see people throughout all history, throughout all the Bible, throughout all of our lives, try to replace it with something else. That moment I try to replace it with something else. Now, I can tell you this. Some of you might hear this story and say, look, don't be too hard on yourself. It's no big deal. You're the dad. She needs to respect you. Put the hammer down. And there may be a time and a place for that where it is appropriate, but I will tell you, I know it was in my heart at that moment, and it was not pretty. The message of the cross is that he took our thirst. The message of the cross is it is finished. And the message of the resurrection, of the tomb that is empty, is that we do have hope of a new life. That our life doesn't end at a cross. That our life doesn't end with our sin, with the penalties of it. But that God is continuing to make us into who he's always wanted us to be. That when we take this violin of a life and we start using it as a tennis racket and we use it to beat ourselves and others up, he says, bring it to me. Let me make it new again. And so this is why, because of the cross, because of the resurrection, we can have a relationship with God again that is restored. We can have a relationship with each other again that is restored, even after we break each other's hearts. We can have, as the hymn says, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. This is what we have in the resurrection of Jesus. Not just a fresh start, but real salvation. From the penalty of sin, the power of sin in our lives, and eventually even the presence of sin, that we would be who God always made us to be in relationship with him and everyone else perfectly. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.